we got to get back to the fundamentals because we've totally skipped over, for instance, that thousands of years we've, we assume people did not have a gender and a sex when we did research. Like right. who, who, who would ever think we, we skipped over two human variables that everyone has? Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. In this episode, we delve into the intricate challenges faced by women in navigating the healthcare system. Accompanied by esteemed expert, Dr. Marjorie Jenkins, we unveil the intricate reasons behind women's ongoing struggle for optimal care. From the nuances of sex-specific medicine to the quest for the right providers, we delve into the depths of the complex landscape. Prepare to unravel the hidden truths and empower yourself with knowledge for a healthier future. Let's get ready to crack the code. So Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much for joining the FemPower Health podcast. I know that you work with both Anka Griffiths and Dr. Allison McGregor. And I spoke to Anka actually a couple of years ago, and Dr. McGregor was actually one of my very first podcast guests. I was so excited to wow. read her book, Sex Matters in Healthcare. And um, it was just, it's great to now be connected with you. So I'm excited for this conversation because there's so much that needs to be discussed about women's health and the nuances that we as patients um, need to take into account, but also healthcare practitioners. Mm -hmm. I actually find, actually, sadly, many healthcare practitioners listen to the FemPower Health podcast and they say, I didn't learn this in med school. So here we go. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I mean, it's a small world. I've worked with Dr. McGregor for over 15 years and of course, Anka for almost two years. And uh, it's really exciting to be here with you today. I've heard great things about your reach and your podcast. I love your advocacy for women's health and for women. So really happy to be here. Thank you so much. So before we dive into all the great things that are in your book, and this is actually a timely discussion, by the way, because I just left a femtech conference uh, from last week. And so lots of things to discuss here. So why don't you give us your background and the inspiration for writing the book, Why Women Aren't Winning at Health But Can? Yeah. So my background, I am a recovering chemical engineer. So I'm very data driven. I'm an internal medicine physician. So I'm an adult medicine physician. I take care, have taken care of men and women. I began focusing on sex and gender specific women's health in 2003 uh, when I joined academic medicine at, in Texas and really built my consulting practice and academic programs, a research institute in Texas around sex and gender health. And at the same time, uh, started some national advocacy around teaching sex and gender evidence in medical school, and also applying the evidence that we do know that has grown out of the last 30 years uh, into patient care. And that culminated in a uh, textbook that I led the development of and was published by Elsevier in 2020, early 2021, and that was Sex and Gender, an Evidence-Based Guide for Practitioners. So um, the Why Women Aren't Winning at Health is really, I mean, it's just a labor of love. I can't say it <laughs> any more than that. I think it's so important for women to be empowered to take control of their health 
and writing this with uh, Anka and Dr. McGregor was just an amazing experience for me as a professional. And I hope that many women benefit from what we've shared with them. Yeah, and I like that in each of the sections, um, each of you provided mm-hmm. your perspective, whether it was your personal experience or clinical experience, and, and a little bit of both in some cases. You mentioned that there's four key factors that prevent women from winning at health mm-hmm. are the global male-centric medical system, the predatory wellness industry, the mm-hmm. minimization and discreditation of traditional health practices, mm-hmm. and women's internalized behaviors, beliefs, and assumptions about their health and well-being. I think that sums it up very well, but I do think yeah. it would be helpful if we took a deep dive into yeah. these elements. And do you have like a high-level reaction to that, that, or a summary that you want to provide before we dive into each of these? The, of course, the global male-centric. That's based on research from uh, decades and really hundreds and thousands of years of medical research. And uh, we've been applying male-centric data to women's health for many, many eons. Um, the predatory wellness industry, I when I spoke with Anka um, and Dr. McGregor about this, It was in my 20 plus years of practice in watching women when they're not feeling well during a life transition or they're not able to get a diagnosis to really be reaching out for those answers, right? And and reading and, and listening and paying out of pocket for supplements and treatments that may not be evidence based and uh, spending a lot of resources trying to just feel better. And that just felt um, very inauthentic to me as a physician and as a woman. Um, And many of those promises that are made are promises unfulfilled and would never be fulfilled. And I think that's just a predatory to anyone who's suffering um, from disease or a condition where they're not feeling their best. And then the discreditation of traditional health practices. So... I am actually a practitioner that treats the patient uniquely, and sometimes we have all the evidence, great level one, but sometimes we don't. And there are complementary health practices that are very beneficial, such as acupuncture and uh, biofeedback and others. And so I don't discount the... um, Eastern, Western medicine meld of approach to health. And at the same time, don't let's not minimize uh, traditional health practices and say that they're not really taking care of women because we do have a lot of knowledge that we could uh, utilize in the health in the healthcare industry. No, absolutely. And then the third, the fourth is just, uh, I think, societally and culturally how women are sort of designated in, in these boxes of being nurturing and multitasking and playing so many different roles. And then going into this environment of seeking health care. And then there is also some paternalism, I think, that's still uh, very prevalent in some areas of medical delivery. And the intersections of all that and the stacking that we talk about in the book is a woman's characteristics, her risk factors, and then culturally and societally, when all of those things come together and she just is disregarded 
um, as not knowing herself and not knowing her body, which to me is a little bit um, ludicrous, right? We know our body the best. I've lived in my body for 56 years. I think I know it. I was hanging out with a friend of mine who she was a midwife and um, she's worked at Planned Parenthood and she's now working with university level students. And she was talking about the phases of, of her life and how even though she is a trained practitioner in a lot of these different areas, until she had the lived experience, she didn't fully appreciate what someone was going through until she had that experience. And, you know, I'd love to discuss this because this is a, I I feel like we can't discuss one point in isolation because there's like this web of things that impact it. So there's that I'm a clinician, I go to school, I learn these things, I may or may not have been in this person's shoes that I'm treating. So there's that, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's I as a woman, only know my body. So yes, I know my body well, but I may not know that something is abnormal to even bother to tell my physician. Absolutely correct. And of course, having gone through medical school and training, I appreciate all of that knowledge that I have. I do believe though, that we sometimes relegate a woman's presenting of her her questions about her body or her feelings um, to a point of if we can't diagnose it with lab testing or physical exam or history taking from that woman, it's often relegated to stress or anxiety or depression. And yet there are many um, conditions that we're still learning about. And we talk in the book about if something is called a syndrome, that typically means um, that we don't have a blood test for it or an x-ray for it. And those tend to be predominantly um, women. Women are predominantly um, have those syndromes like fibromyalgia syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome. So what I love about the book is that we respect the medical industry and and medical and healthcare delivery and all of those wonderful providers. At the same time, we provide a framework for how you can partner with your provider. And I think it is a partnership. It should not be transactional, right? It should not be customer-oriented and transactional. It should really be that next level of partnership, which is what I have done throughout my years of practice is really partnering with a woman, but also as a practitioner and as, as a medical student and resident, sometimes we're, we're sort of trained to think you have to find the diagnosis. Like there has to be a diagnosis. And if there isn't a diagnosis, then it's this other sort of ambiguous things that we're going to say it is about. The first thing I, I said to women and I list, and I say it in the book is, uh, whatever you tell me, I'm going to believe you. That was just my opening discussion with women on referral to me. And many would just break down at that point because they had felt very disregarded. So I agree with you. I think it's complicated and there's no one area that's more important than the other. And at the same time, I don't think women. So what if your period is normal for you? But it's but maybe you're thinking like, what is this normal then ask your practitioner. And if you don't feel comfortable having that conversation, then 
Maybe it, you need to find another partner in your healthcare. I do like how there's the question in the book around when you do get a diagnosis and you want to understand where mm-hmm. it's coming from to ask the provider, what criteria are you basing this diagnosis on? So mm-hmm. this is the tough question. So we know that women were not mandated to be part of clinical trials until the 90s. I think mm-hmm. in 2006, there was another ruling, I can't remember the nuance of it, that led to another layer of making sure women were taken into account in these mm-hmm. clinical trials, but we're still seeing the dosing of drugs and 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 the application of drugs. Like there's an um, example in your book about aspirin. Yes. But because there's limited trials and everyone has a viewpoint on, you know, what should or should not be a treatment, and we're still trying to understand women's bodies, do you find that in a lot of cases, that question in and of itself may be hard to answer for clinicians? I think there's a lot of data out there. Mm -hmm. And I believe that with Dr. McGregor's textbook and my textbook, which are the two signature textbooks in the U.S. and probably globally in relation to practice, practicing sex and gender specific healthcare, that we do have data that's not being applied. And women are being enrolled in clinical trials at record numbers these days. So the issue is that we don't have mandates to analyze that data separately. Right. And so the healthcare policy um, I worked in the F- at the FDA uh, for about four years before my current position, and I can say that I learned a lot about developing. I helped write healthcare policy and guidance. Um, and we, if you have health policy that doesn't have any teeth to it, then you, it's going to be a suggestion to do that. And okay. if it's suggested, then those who have the data, if it costs more or takes longer time, or you might find out something that you don't, you don't want to know, then it's, it's like suggesting to your teenager, they clean their room before they go out with their friends. You right. know what you're going to get. Right. I think for the providers, the answer might be the majority of this drug or this device has been the more majority of the information I have as your doctor or your provider is based on this population. And just to be transparent, so the hidden agenda that we see both in education and in healthcare practice is that we say it as if it applies to everyone and that we know that for a fact. By the way, I did want to um, explain the aspirin um, example because it is not something that I knew. So daily aspirin, commonly recommended by doctors, does not in fact reduce women's risk of a first heart attack and can be dangerous when used long-term because of the increased risk of bleeding disorders. And um, so the ibuprofen and over-the-counter NSAID pain relievers have likewise been found to be less effective at relieving women's pain than men's and come with a higher risk of adverse effects, including liver injury. Yeah. So aspirin in the the original data that we had, when we looked back over several decades of the the data, we found that aspirin did not reduce a woman's risk of heart attack preventative. So I want to clarify, this is primary prevention, right? Women who have not had a heart attack. 
and uh, and only when women were older uh, would it help prevent stroke. And there were higher risk of GI bleeding, stomach irritation, and also um, if you have hypertension, high blood pressure, there's also a risk of potential for a cerebral or brain bleed if your blood pressure isn't well controlled. So fortunately, we have newer data now that um, shows some more specifics around primary prevention and aspirin and who specifically should be taking that. But you probably recall the you may recall the bear commercial, right? The bear aspirin about yep. taking it for cardiovascular prevention, yes. heart prevention. We don't see that anymore because we now, because of good data, we've been able to take that broad funnel and mm-hmm. say, oh, everybody should do this. And now, oh, well, now this, this, these populations and now these populations. So it really helps us to get to precision medicine to be able to, but you have to know the new data, right? I mean, you can't just uh, practice in a vacuum with what you learned in medical school, you and I in medical school and residency, like we have to be lifelong learners. I had interviewed ACOG when they had republished, or I should say updated a version of their book around pregnancy and all the different stages. And mm-hmm. I took the opportunity to ask one of the the co-authors about the new things in the books. We focused on that. And I was struck by a new policy that they had where instead of waiting until six weeks for the first postpartum visit, mm-hmm. that they recommended three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, my question to her was, one, how do clinicians know about this? Mm-hmm. And two, are the payers going to reimburse? And it was interesting because she said something to the, I don't want to quote it, but the, the mm-hmm. gist of it was it's a question on their annual exam, a question. And I come from a training background. I do mm-hmm. work change. Like I'm the one who's like, here's a grand strategy. Now, how do we make people actually change mm-hmm. their behavior? Mm-hmm. And I can assure you one question on exam does not change behavior. And I still mm-hmm. read everywhere six weeks for that first visit. Correct. Additionally, the payers reimburse on a package. So it's like, uh, there is a pregnant woman under my payer system. Doctor mm-hmm. gets X dollars. So now we know there's an OBGYN shortage. People are not going to med school. There's a shortage of everyone. And now we're saying, oh, by the way, here's an extra visit to add to your already busy plate. I think, it's a multi, I'm, I think we need a multi-pronged approach. So we need to educate our consumers, which is one of the reasons we wrote this book. And the other piece is continuing to educate our future providers by getting this information into a learning environment. And that can be a classroom, a clinic, you know, a global health experience. Um, And then we really need to have more public health campaigns around new information. I mean, you're talking about a three to four week follow-up for postpartum, and that is in large part due to some of those um, higher mortality and yep. also depression and postpartum psychosis, which we miss. And yep. that is very important. So at the at the time that we're telling OBGYNs this is important to do, we also need to be telling women who are pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant, you need to see your doctor between three to four weeks because of XYZ right. and why it is important. So women will take care of themselves if it um, if you impart onto them 
how important it is for them to be able to take care of their families and others because women tend to put others first. Yep. And so I, you know, you and I could sit here and I know with your experience um, and mine, we could think about just this vast like ecosystem that we built and where we don't have the data. And yet I, I like you like to do practical steps to get things to into women's hands and into the media and of course, into social media uh, at podcasting and sharing information so that people can absorb it. We can be our own champions. And at the same time, in medical education, nursing, pharmacy, we need to be teaching what we know and what we don't know. Right. And that has been a major effort of Dr. McGregor and mine with our colleagues nationally for over 15 years. Right. No, that's awesome. And thank you for doing that. (laughs) The one thing I um, have a question about is how do you understand what is good training? Because what I was struck by when I read that section of the book is, oh, it's this weekend course. And so, for example, like I know NOMS does put on a certification program Mm -hmm. for those who want to specialize in menopause. I haven't assessed it. I have no idea Mm -hmm. if it's a weekend course, if it's a six-month thing, a year long. I have Mm -hmm. no idea. How does one assess that? Because, like, for example, I have a whole section on my website around find a doctor because for each of these conditions – it's really hard to find the right doctor. And so for menopause, I tell folks, go to NOM's website because those are all certified. Correct. Um, but again, like what is good enough training? Because like in New York City, hormone clinics are the new fad. And like, what are the questions a woman should ask when they are really trying to find that good doctor? Because let's face it, when you've been down a road where you're not getting help, if someone says, stand on your head and you'll be healed, they'll do it. Like that's where we've gotten. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there, Georgie. I would say that. um, So first I would say that assessing education of our providers is not really where we want to be as, as, as patients. Um, I'm really much more um, supportive of having that partnership role and open communication. So if I, if I feel comfortable asking you the question, can you tell me if this drug has been studied in women mm-hmm. and will it prevent what you're telling me it will prevent or treat what you're telling me it will treat? Mm-hmm. Knowing that my physician isn't going to get very uncomfortable and a little bit defensive and, you know, say, well, it's FDA approved, you know, just having that and for my doctor to say, you know, I I haven't checked that out, but I will find out for you. Or no, okay. I have heard about this. And first, it's going to be hard for the mainstream practitioner to take off-label or non-FDA approved therapies. And I'll just share with you about that testosterone story. That was, you know, a frightening thing for me as a practitioner to try to help taper that patient down off of testosterone, which could have caused a lot of other repercussions for her mentally, energy level, et cetera. And yet testosterone pellets implanted, you and I both know that when you put those there, they're absorbed at a higher level in the first few weeks. They also depend on your adipose, your fat layer in your abdomen, where they're placed, Um, And 
None of that is taught in medical school, Georgia. You and I know that. I have to lean on the practice. We have the best training in the world here in the United States. I do believe that. And um, I think that we have to lean on that while at the same time we need to have the opportunity to question the treatments that are being recommended for us. And you and I have been around long enough to know that hormone clinics were go up and down, right? They start and then we get more data about hormones and they fall out of favor and now that's back. And this new generation of women that are coming into perimenopause are again new consumers because when you go to a hormone clinic, it's usually out of pocket. So remember what we talked about pay for wellness, pay for cure. And and I believe that much of what women are being told in those areas is not evidence-based and it's um, not healthy for them. And believe me, I'm a proponent of getting women to great again because that's how I've practiced in, in my all of my practice with women. And I was I was sent women in my later 10 years of my practice that nobody else could, quote, figure out, or they had taken out every organ that she didn't need to live, scoped up and down, cathed her heart, and then said, oh, you're still not feeling well. Well, go see Marjorie Jenkins. And and I embraced those very difficult cases and worked her through what was the best of what, where could we get her? Was it a new normal? Was it her old normal? Because women have to accept that. And if they can't get back to what was before, we ha- she has to kind of grieve that a little bit. And we have to allow her to do that and try to get her to the best new normal that we can. Let's talk about some of the hot topics that you're seeing that are just mind-boggling for you right now. (laughs) With the weight loss drugs, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I just interviewed Dr. Robert Lustig. He wrote the book Metabolical. And um, boy, he has opinions (laughs) about a lot of things related to um, our processed foods, but a lot of incredible data. So it was really Mm -hmm. um, a pleasure to interview him. But, you know, weight loss drugs are a big thing right now. You're right. Menopause Mm -hmm. is the new way for women's health. And, you know, others. So again, you're seeing all the patients coming through. What are some of the things that you're seeing that we should all be kind of a little bit leery about or precautious Mm -hmm. about? What I would say is that as a um, healthcare delivery systems and practitioners, we were taught in medical school uh, and residency that anyone can lose weight. If they just follow, you know, low calorie or they'll start moving more, like move your body, eat less calories. And now we know that obesity is a disease. And yet we thought it was about being weak willed or, you know, all these other societal, you know, negative um, stereotypes around excess weight. Whether people decide to utilize those for weight loss Um, I believe that is a decision between themselves and their practitioner. I think we'll see more of these, not less. And I also think there are other great things on the horizon around obesity as a metabolic disease. And for me, I hope uh, medicine will embrace that 
uh, instead of making patients feel like they are um, failures. Let's talk about menopause. Yeah, sure. So menopause is a natural life transition. And I hate that we've diseased menopause. So that we have, just because we have hormone therapy replacement doesn't mean menopause is a disease. When you go through puberty, we go through puberty, right? We have our reproductive span of life. Now we're in menopause. That is a life transition. Some women traverse menopause very well. Very minimal side effects, few sleep disturbances, and they don't seek hormone replacement therapy. And then there are others who have soaking night sweats, gaining weight, um, emotional disturbances, and really want to feel back to their, quote, normal, right? They're normal. And when I see patients uh, through their menopause transition, it's a year of wellness that we talk about, a year not a few weeks, or this is going to make you feel like yourself in two or three weeks or four weeks or whatever. Hormone therapy, once you start it, it it takes about 12 weeks before we really see where that, that patient's going to level set and then make adjustments. Um, and so I think that menopause has is an industry now. And we, as I said, we have a new generation of women that are entering menopause or are in menopause, and they are considered a huge consumer base. It's billions of dollars globally to treat, quote, treat menopause. And I think for me, and I hope for many, that we stop, don't view it as disease. Look at the person in front of you. What is she telling you? What does she need? And you try to explain to her what this will do for you and let's, and what does good look like to you? What else are you seeing that is like a big hot topic and either it's something to be excited about or weary of? Well, you know, artificial intelligence, right, is coming and um, it's being, uh, it's blown up uh, lately. And I think it's only going to continue to grow and it's going to be a tool that we use in medicine and a tool that that could be very powerful in sort of correlate, like collating all of this, like massive amounts of information and calling it down to where it's applicable. But for artificial um, intelligence, the algorithms that are utilized for data, that comes from real world data. Right. So chat, GPT goes out and mines the internet for resources to give you an answer to your query. Remember, all of that data, there is a bias in that. Um, There's bias in tech. There's bias in wearables to who designed it. They gender their technology. And so that's something that I think we need to continue to have conversations around and remind people that just because we have a great big data mining engine does not mean that we've suddenly taken all of the bias out of that that discussion and that decision because we haven't. Um, we need more. We need more data to not be gender and sex biased, race ethnicity biased, in order to get the answers for true precision medicine. I think for the patient. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like in the research I've been doing with AI, it seems to be helping more optimize the business processes 
And that yes. seems to be a lot more trusted. I know one physician yes. said it helped him. He was trying to treat a patient that needed urgent treatment mm -hmm. and the family refused to let him do his job and they were being argumentative. And so he, and I, I'm actually trying to visualize, was this happening in real time or just the way the story was yeah. explained made it seem, but anyways, it was something to the effect of I'm sitting here trying to treat the patient. The family's arguing with me. So I'm telling ChatGPT to please explain why I'm doing this. And then the family still argued. He goes, can you please explain in a nice, patient, calm voice? <laughs> so then it did. And the family let him do his job. I thought that was a hilarious example. So I have to say that is hilarious. I can't imagine that um, in that sense. I think for me, my then this is Marjorie as the physician and personal approach. I probably would not ask ChatGPT to explain to a patient and family what I need to do. <laughs> I feel like I should probably be able to say that in a pretty calm way. And and I'm someone that when I started into women's health in the early 2000s, of course, Suzanne Summers' books were everywhere. I, I got like nine copies of her latest book when I started practice in Texas. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, I just took them. And uh, the patient would say, I want to, I want compounded hormones because Suzanne Summers uses them and would need to work them through that. But, um, you know, that's why medicine is so joyful, right? For us to practice. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's the art of medicine. If it's just data and just calling through data, um, it, it would lose it would lose that passion and joy for me to help right. patients. Patients' journeys are each and every one of them so personal that I feel very um, honored to just be on the journey with them. Like I'm a big fan of AI. I do think it's something we have to be cautious yes. about, but it's quite incredible to see, especially in femtech some of the things that people are trying to do to solve some of these challenges mm -hmm. um, and the awareness it's creating. And I think even in your book, it's, it's really, there's a lot of interesting things, but it still mm -hmm. is the fundamentals. Like mm -hmm. how is that conversation with your clinician? Is mm -hmm. it a fly by night fad, you know, and just really mm -hmm. and being thoughtful and understanding our body and how do we explain it to a clinician? I know you have a resource online that people can download on the things they should be monitoring about their body. Mm -hmm. But I think being able to comb through someone's medical records, obviously with permission, and I'm not, I have not thought through the exact perfect <laughs> process. So no, everyone, no, be careful. No. I'm not saying we're going to now give away our data. So no, no, qualify, no. qualify, qualify. Yeah. But generally speaking, yeah. like if we can get to this point where, you know, for example, mm -hmm. like, let's take that example with, um, the person who is now pregnant who should see their clinician three weeks later instead of six weeks later. A physician mm -hmm. shouldn't have to wait till that exam that could be 12 months down the road to know that this new guideline is there to maybe yes or not remember the question on the exam to mm -hmm. maybe possibly help their patient. Mm -hmm. It should be you go into the EMR, alert, alert, here's mm -hmm. a pregnant patient, alert, alert, they just had a baby, call them, alert, alert, make appointment mm -hmm. three weeks. Mm -hmm. Like that's to me where the AI can come in is like the research is there and it just gets pushed out to the EMR. Like to me, that's the future is yeah, I making think the our EMRs EMR better. Is, yeah. Yes. And you have, but we have Epic, for instance, Epic EMR, we have Epic uh, writers that have to write those, those, those flags. And so the actually have to put it into the Epic like environment. So there's, 
And then, like you said, like we're not going to go mining people's data without their permission. And at the same time, this is about healthcare quality and safety, right? Yes. If you're in the healthcare system, my Epic EMR is over there in the healthcare system, and I would want them to tell me if there was something I needed exactly. to do differently if I had a if I had pregnancy. But that's the same in in a way between uh, you know the mother getting an immunization during pregnancy and then um, m- monitoring safety outcomes in the mother and the fetus for after birth, we don't yet have data that talks to each other across that continuum. Nowhere in the globally do we have that really maybe in Switzerland, but they have great, you know, they, they follow the entire population from birth to death, but uh, we don't have that here. And so even though AI is so amazing, it's technology that has to be designed and implemented to work in our ecosystem. Yes. So that's, that's exciting for me. Um, remember I'm a, I'm a data file. I love data. Um, I love, I, I asked chat GPT lots of interesting questions just to entertain myself on my yes. phone. Um, but at the same time, I think that the practitioner will always be that conduit to the patient. Oh, yeah. And yet I'm very excited for the uh, OM platform that Anka and we uh, are building right around expert advice for women that's very well evidence-based and by experts across the globe, because right now women don't have that resource and they're searching the internet and they're searching in places that can sometimes be harmful um, to them as they're trying to dig through all that data. With respect to the clinicians that you all have on the OM platform, my understanding is that you all are looking for, you have multiple disciplines in Mm -hmm. there, which I love. And so tell us about that experience, because Mm -hmm. what I appreciated is even throughout the book, you all discussing how it doesn't necessarily have to be just an MD who's helping a woman. It's really this holistic piece. And we know Mm -hmm. even in hospitals, they're starting to have multidisciplinary teams and bringing in integrative care. So how does one navigate through the OM system to be able to find the healthcare provider and have that seamless experience so we to don't get the what they need to the healthcare provider like you have where to find a doctor that is that's not a part of this platform yet this is about um, really uh, educational courses that you can okay. take to listen to the the experts and and we do have many non MDs we have MDs uh, nurse practitioners yoga, dietitians, nutrition. I think for women, sort of the group I would often put together for a woman as we were traversing a, a health issue for her that was really challenging was to first and foremost um, have those practitioners around me that understood that, whether it was nutrition, dietitian, um, mental health, uh, emotional health, and also asking her about her social health and what was her social infrastructure and understanding what that is. I I also believe that the experts that we've engaged um, being at the top of their field is also also giving women a a choice of how they want to hear addressing certain issues. As much as I'd love to say it, so many women, you talk about the fundamentals in our book, we got to get back to the fundamentals because we've totally skipped over, for instance, that thousands of years we've, we assume people did not have a gender and a sex. 
when we did research. Like right. who, who, who would ever think we, we skipped over two human variables that everyone has and we right. know impacts research. But also I think the successful um, health relationship in the last chapter that we talk about, the, the pyramid, and asking yourself, where are you at in that pyramid with you and your provider? And have you been seeing your provider for 10 years, 15, 20? And are you at the top of that pyramid, which is results? Because if you aren't, if you haven't like traversed that pyramid, it's like Maslow's hierarchy to self-actualization. Some of, some women are still right here at the physiology. Like I'm able to get out of bed, get dressed, do what I need to do during the day. But when I'm going to talk to my provider, they're gaslighting me. Right. And I've been seeing this provider for so long. You need, you can get a new provider. Right. Like be your advocate for that. And, um, I mean, you and I have seen a lot happen in, in the healthcare realm and with technology and data, et cetera. And at the end of the day, it is one human talking to another human. And we may have more knowledge and ex- expertise. And at the same time, there has got to be that respect and trust or we're not going to get there. That is true. So what about how someone determines which course to take? Because you know, there's a spectrum of where a mm-hmm. woman is going to be in her health. So this is going to be, for instance, a, a course that you may want to look at if you're in perimenopause and okay. you're wondering what does that journey look like potentially for me and okay. how, what questions should I ask my provider? If it's about heart health, are you in your 30s, but someone in your family just had a heart attack and you want to know what can I do at, in cardiovascular prevention? Um, if you, you know, if you are having sexual, um, dysfunction or sexual health questions, uh, I'll be doing a masterclass on sexual health, uh, because it's so important and it is such mm-hmm. a sensitive topic. Yes. Um, talking about, I think just sort of, um, breaking down some of that sensitivity around urinary issues around after pregnancy, or during menopause, you're too embarrassed to ask your doctor, well, maybe you want to watch this course and then be very empowered to go to your physician and don't wait till they get up and touch the doorknob, right? <laughs> like, and then you go, oh, by the way, I have this other thing I want to talk to you about. Uh, go in there prepared to have the conversation. And I think yep. these courses will, will help empower women. And of course, this as you grow anything and get feedback from people who utilize it, you'll, it'll, it will evolve. Um, it may evolve into little three minute snippets they can listen to on their phone. Um, but it will be very highly um, evidence-based or experienced um, providers, not really pushing sort of my approach exactly, but what, what we know from, the decades of experience and evidence is best for mm-hmm. patients and, right. and hopefully build that out and build a community of trust among uh, women globally. One thing you'll get from the book is that the things we write about aren't just happening here in the U.S. I mean, they're happening everywhere. Women right. everywhere are suffering. If you want to just be discouraged, just uh, Google gaslighting and medical care and women's health and you, the the stories are 
gut-wrenching um, about how women are not um, being heard. Women having to video their own stroke at home because by the time they get to the emergency room, the symptoms have abated. And after three days in a row of seeing the emergency room physician, they finally show them their iPhone video with their droopy face. That I mean, I would love to say we're above that, Georgie, um, and we're past that in women's health, but we are far from that. So I think just empowerment is important. Knowledge is important for women. Um, And the reason we started on the journey of why women aren't winning um, and sort of synergized that along with the expert, uh, the experts that we've we're working with is that we sadly are not past some of the basics. What would you say in the platform that you've put together for those who've taken the course, what has been most surprising to you? So I think one of the, uh, so the course is launching, the master classes are launching. So we'll get that feedback. Anka is the the founding, you know, she has such vision around this and, and brought Dr. McGregor and I in to help from the scientific and women's health perspective. Right. But it's more about um, the feedback I've gotten from the book since it dropped and having women in my own community texting me saying, I can't read your book, uh, but for a few pages, because I start crying, remembering that that Mm -hmm. happened to me. Um, Or can you, uh, you know, can you please sign my book because I'm just, I'm just highlighting it and I'm making notes and I want to ask my doctor about these things. And it's just been this sort of flood of, wow, it's not just me. Like this is is something that women, lots of women, millions of women are encountering. And that's been uh, very heartening for me. It's very sad in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But every woman who has read our book, can see herself in some part of this book. And right. that and that tells me we did something we did something well with that book. That's awesome. And are you seeing that from all age ranges? Yes. So I also have given the book to my own daughters who are Gen Zs and millennials and asking and gotten some feedback about that. So uh, Interesting. So it is I think for my daughters, it's even easier for a practitioner, right, to sort of talk over a young, what, right, a young 20-something. So if you think about what we're dealing with in our 40s and 50s and women's health, just think about being that 20-something-year-old with an autoimmune disease symptoms that nobody can put into a box. And so, therefore, it's nothing serious. Right. They have lupus or... Uh, thyroiditis or something. So, right. so I think that, yes. So that's a good question. And I believe that across the lifespan, some of these principles that are discussed will be really helpful for women to just go in and right. also to be selective about who you decide to trust and partner with. I think that's really important as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you so much for, for the book. Your advocacy and what you're bringing to the world is so important. And it's been such an honor to be here with you to have these discussions. Thank you. And you guys too. 
And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.